Good morning and welcome again. We're grateful for your presence. We're thankful for the opportunity to be together today to worship God in spirit and in truth. It might be that you are visiting with us today, and as always, we invite you to come back and be with us at every opportunity that you have. We have a number of people that visit from week to week, and we're always grateful to have visitors in our midst. We have a lot of folks that are traveling right now. It is summer break, and so that being the case, a lot of folks on the road, and we pray that they'll have a safe journey. And if you are in the process of going from one place to another, we pray that you too would have a safe travel. We're going to be looking today at Luke 16, and I want us to think for just a moment or two about some lessons from beyond the grave. One of the great things about Scripture is that we can always learn something for everyday living. There's a lot to be gleaned from reading, studying, and meditating on the truth of God. And in Luke chapter 16, we have an account of the deaths of two people, the rich man and Lazarus. What I want us to do today is to focus for just a moment or two on verses 27 through 31 as we think about some of the lessons that we can learn or glean from this account. And there are a lot of different ways that you could approach a study of this text. And no doubt many of us have looked at this particular passage of Scripture from different angles. And what I want us to do today is to maybe take a little bit different look at this narrative provided for us by Luke. And as we think about what has been recorded nearly 2,000 years ago, I want to begin by talking about the testimony of time. When we talk about time, one of the things that we have come to appreciate as we grow older in life is the passing of life. Life literally gets by you before you know it. And so first, time needs to be viewed as that which is very swift in nature. Over and over again, the Bible talks about the swiftness, the brevity of life. I think about the words of David, and I have used this verse on a number of occasions, but as I grow older in life, I have come to appreciate it that much more. David said in Psalm 37, verse 25, I have been young, but now I am old. Whether we like it or not, we are growing older in life. Job would say many, many years ago, man born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. Jacob in the long ago in Genesis chapter 49 alluded to the brevity of life. He talked about how his days upon this earth had been few. He also described life as a pilgrimage. And literally, that's what life is. We are simply passing through on our way to another sphere of life. Whether we like it or not, we are growing older. And I guess a second thing that we might follow that statement up with is this. Whether we like it or not, one day we will face death. Now I will freely grant that the Lord could come during our lifetime. The bottom line is we just don't know. In Luke chapter, in Luke chapter 16, we read about the rich man and Lazarus. And the Bible says that the beggar died Verse 22, and the rich man also died and was buried. 
What that says to us is that death is something that all will face. The Hebrew writer said in chapter 9, verse 27, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this cometh the judgment. James compared life to a vapor that appears for a little while, he said, and then vanishes away. Sometimes we use the phrase, here today, gone tomorrow. That's really a good summation of life, isn't it? But then let me suggest another thing as it relates to time and the swiftness of time. And that is time and the time that we have here on this earth should be passed shrewdly. What do I mean when I say we ought to, we ought to be shrewd with our time? Well, what I mean is we need to be wise with the time that we have here on planet earth. Do you remember the psalmist in Psalm 90 at verse 10? How he talked about the days of our years, maybe three score and ten. He said, if by reason of strength, they be fourscore years. In other words, we may live to be 70. It might be the case that we live to be 80 years of age. But he said, it is soon cut off and we fly away. The psalmist there, and I really believe that Moses was the one that penned Psalm 90. And what Moses is saying is, look, you may live to be 70 you may live to be 80 in this life, but ultimately, life as you know it will be cut down, and you'll fly away. As Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, when death comes, the body returns to the dust from whence it was taken, and the spirit to God who gave it life. In Ecclesiastes 12 at verse 7. So in light of the brevity of life, here's what the psalmist concluded. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to fear. Only a foolish person would live as if there is no tomorrow. And there are a lot of people in our world today that live as if there is no tomorrow, don't they? There are a lot of people in our world today, rather than taking an eternal view of life, it's all about the here and now. It's about the transitory, the temporary things of life. Note the contrast between the thinking of many in the world and that of Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul said, we, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. He said the things which are seen are temporal. The things which are not seen are eternal. And I might ask this question. When you look at life and you think about the brevity of life and the fact that time is passing so swiftly, what's your view? Are you looking at it from an eternal perspective or a temporal? Now, there's a second thing that I want you to see in our, in our text. We talk about the testimony of time. And then there is the testimony of truth. Now, the rich man and Lazarus, according to Jesus in this narrative, they have both died. And they are in what we would call that eternal realm. Interestingly, they are in different places. And so in light of the state of these two individuals, one, the beggar, Lazarus, is in a place of comfort. We would call it paradise. You remember in Luke chapter 23 when Jesus was dying on the cross and one of the thieves 
said, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said, today shall you be with me in paradise. Paradise is the abode of the righteous. It is, as Jesus would identify here, the bosom of Abraham. And so the beggar, or Lazarus, is in a place of comfort. However, the rich man is said to be in a place of torment. Verse 23, the Bible says, And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. The abode of the unrighteous is identified by Jesus here as a place of torment. Now, Peter would give us a commentary on this abode in 2 Peter chapter 2 at verse 4 when he said, The angels that sinned, God cast down, some translations say cast down to hell. In the original, the word is Tartarus. It's spelled T-A-R-T-A-R-U-S, Tartarus. And so they are in the abode of the unrighteous. That is, those who have disobeyed God, that have rejected him. So, you have Lazarus in this place of bliss or comfort, paradise. The rich man, however, is in a place of torment. And so, it's in light of that that we come face to face with the testimony of truth. And what I want you to see in this context is the importance of the all-sufficiency of Scripture. Listen, if you would, to what Jesus said in verse 27. The rich man, of course, is speaking here. And he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that is, Father Abraham, that you would send him, that is, Lazarus, the beggar, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Do you believe in the all-sufficiency of Scripture? To me, everything that we need to know about how to live for God has been revealed in Scripture. Peter would say in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, that God has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Paul would say in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that all Scripture, every Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. So everything that we need to know about how to live for Almighty God has been revealed in the Scriptures. So, in light of that, there are two things that maybe we ought to think about. Number one, the Scriptures reveal the will of God. Think about that for a minute. What is God's will for you? What's God's will for the human family? Listen to Paul, if you would, in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul said that God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants people to be saved. God is in the saving business. The Hebrew writer asked the question in Hebrews chapter 2 at verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Salvation, according to the Hebrew writer, is great. It's great because of the one who is the architect of it. That's Almighty God. 
It's great because of the one who was the agent by which the redemptive plan was consummated. That's Jesus. And the writer is asking the question, how will we escape if we neglect the great salvation? God wants you to be saved. Peter said that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is in the saving business. As a matter of fact, that's why he sent Jesus to earth. Jesus would sum up his mission on earth in Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God is interested in the salvation of your soul. God wants you to be saved. You need to understand that. Now, there's a second thing. Not only do, script, do the scriptures reveal the will of God, but the scriptures reveal the way to God. How can I enjoy a relationship with God the Father? Listen to Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus is saying, look, I am the exclusive way to a relationship with God. You want to enjoy peace and harmony in your life? You want to enjoy a constant abiding relationship with God the Father? It's through me. Now, there are a lot of folks in our world today, they have ruled out the importance of Jesus in life. Some have said he is not essential to the salvation of your soul. And yet Luke said, neither is there salvation in any other. <clears throat> Excuse me. There is no other name of the heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so the idea is that salvation is in Christ. And the only way that we can get into Christ is by being baptized into Christ. On Pentecost Day, you remember all the people that were in the city of Jerusalem? Many were there to observe the feast of Pentecost. Peter preached the first gospel sermon. The Bible tells us that many of those people on that occasion were cut or convicted in their hearts. And so they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. That's how you enjoy forgiveness. When you do that, the Bible says God adds you to the church. Now, think about our context for a moment. Here is, here is the rich man. He's in eternity. And in his mind, he's thinking, look, if somebody goes back to my brothers on planet Earth, and this person has been raised from the dead, surely they will believe and avert spiritual disaster. I mean, that's the thinking here. But note, if you would, again, what Abraham said. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now, note the exchange. No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. In other words, surely... This would be enough to bring them to repentance 
to make them see, hey, look, we need to get our lives right with Almighty God. We need to be living in such a way so that we are ready for eternity. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Now let me ask this question. Do we have a precedence for somebody rising from the dead and people remaining in unbelief? Well, we do, don't we? Let me give you a couple of examples. The first would be Lazarus. You remember John chapter 11, Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus, commanded that the stone be removed from the face of the tomb, and he said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus came forth, didn't he? He was resurrected from the grave. What kind of an effect did that have on the people of that day? Well, the Bible says in John chapter 11 that many of the Jews, they believed. In other words, it convicted them that, hey, this is the Son of God. But then look at the religious leaders. How did they react? You know what they began to do? To plot and plan how they might put Jesus to death. So what kind of an effect did it have on them? Not one positive effect. As a matter of fact, you turn over to John chapter 12. And in chapter 12, you have Lazarus having dinner. And the Bible says that the religious leaders sought to put him to death. Now, many of the Jews believed. That's what the text says. But here, on the other hand, there are some that rather than taking the evidence, they tried to put him to death. Here's what I'm saying. The only way that we can be saved is through a knowledge of truth. And that's really one of the great lessons in this text. The testimony of truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The only thing that's going to help you get your life right and then enable you to stay right with Almighty God is this book called the Bible. That's it. There's nothing else. That's why we talk about the all-sufficiency of Scripture. Now, there's a third thing that I would call attention to, and that is the testimony of torment. What do I mean when I say the testimony of torment? Well, we began by talking about the passing of time, the passing of life. But now... We want to consider the passing from this life. You see, one day, whether we like it or not, we're going to die. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the sting of death. One day, you and I will step outside this veil of existence, and we will be in that eternal realm. Now, granted, Jesus may come first, but whatever, whatever takes place, we will one day be in eternity. And yet, when we look at the veil that has been lifted in Luke chapter 16, and we are garnered insight into that eternal realm, the Hadean realm, the place of the unseen, there is testimony for us from this place called torment. What kind of testimony? First, the facts revealed by the rich man. Note again what is said. Back up with me for just a moment or two. 
And note what is said in verse 22. The rich man also died and was buried. Verse 23, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. Do you see a, a theme running through these verses? The theme is this is a place of suffering. Note also verse 28. In verse 28, the rich man said, I have five brothers. And he wanted Abraham to testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. You know, we live in a day and time when many people have watered down the concept of any kind of punishment. The other night, the television was on. We'd been watching the news, and I stepped into the bathroom, and David Letterman followed the news. And in his opening monologue, he was making jokes as he always does. And what caught my attention on this occasion, he began to joke about hell. He talked about how somebody had found the hidden key or the key to hell in a fake rock. He was having a big time talking about it. People were laughing. He was laughing. And he talked about how the devil still had his Christmas lights hanging. And as I thought about that, here's what came to my mind. You know, there are a lot of people, they have a lot of fun laughing at the expense of eternal things. And my response to Mr. Letterman or anybody else, hey, look, you have the right and the prerogative to laugh about it. You can have fun. You can laugh. Matter of fact, you can joke all you want to about it. But let me tell you what, it doesn't change the truth of God. You can laugh and dismiss the concept of hell or torment and you can, you can engage in parodies about it all you want. You can try to water it down. You can try to wish it away or will it away. The fact of the matter is, it is what it is. And there are a lot of folks in our world today, they laugh at the concept of hell. Well, let me tell you this, the rich man wasn't laughing. And if you end up there, you won't be laughing either, nor will I. It is a real place for real people. So we talk about, we, we talk about the suffering. Now, this is the Hadean realm. And the rich man is suffering. Ultimately, the judgment will follow the Hadean realm when Jesus comes. And then there will be the assigning of eternal destinies. And those who are in torment, those who are in Tartarus, you know where they're going? They're going to hell. And Jesus said that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, verse 41. Hell is described as a place of unquenchable fire. He described, well, the Bible describes hell as a place 
that burns with fire and brimstone. It doesn't sound like a laughing matter to me. And there are a lot of folks that when they read the scriptures, they need to understand that Jesus had more to say about the subject of hell than any other person recorded in New Testament scripture. I think one of the things that added to the suffering, the misery of this man, note verse 25. When Abraham said, son, remember. You remember the past? I wonder how many people are in eternity today and that haunting, searing memory of what if or I should have done that. I should have lived right. I should have become a Christian. I should have gotten my life back together. I should have lived faithfully for the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't think for a minute there aren't people in the eternal realm right now as we speak that are thinking. Wish I'd have done things differently. Wish I'd lived right. There's a second thing you need to see, and that's the separation. Look at verse 26. Jesus said, besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to you. There is a separation that occurs at death between the righteous and the unrighteous, the people of God and the people of the devil. Not only are we separated from one another, but we are separated from the presence of Almighty God forevermore. Once you step out into eternity, look, your fate is sealed. It's over with. There's no crossing over. There's no coming back. It's done. Now, we talk about the facts revealed by the rich man. Let me share with you very quickly, secondly, the fear of the rich man. Look again at verse 27. He said to Abraham, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send, send him to my father's house, wanting Lazarus to go to his father's house. He said, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them lest they also come to this place of torment. Please listen very carefully. This man's fate was sealed. He was in eternity. But he did not want his own flesh and blood coming to be with him in that place of abode. That was his fear. His fear was that one day they would join him. I want to ask you this question today as we close. If you go to heaven, and hopefully and prayerfully you will, who will you take with you? You're going to take your husband or wife, your brother or sister, your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. Who are you going to take with you? What about the flip side? But let's say you go to hell. Let's say one day you're out in eternity. Let's just say, for the sake of our lesson text, you are in Tartarus, in this place of torment. Who are you going to take with you? Your husband and wife? 
Will they join you one day? What about, what about your children? There are a lot of things we would do for our children. Matter of fact, most of us as parents, we want the absolute very best for our children. We don't want anything to hurt them, to harm them. We do our best to provide for them, to care for them, nurture them, love them, protect them. And you mean to tell me by the way that I live, the way that I act, that I could one day influence them to be in hell with me? That ought to cause me to quake in my boots. So what about you? If you go to hell, will your spouse be there? If you go to hell, will your children be there with you? What about your grandkids? You say, I don't want that to happen. Neither do I. The Lord surely doesn't want it to happen. This guy, please listen very carefully. This guy did not want his family to come and be with him. Sometimes I hear people joke about hell and they talk about, well, I want to go where all the, the parties are and stuff. I want to go where all the fun people are. Let me tell you what, they're not having any fun from what I can tell. Every bar, it's closed. There are no bars in eternity. No more drinking, no more dancing, no more hooping and hollering and having fun. That's over with. So who are you going to take with you? We ought to think very carefully about eternal things. Lessons beyond the grave. Real life. I want to ask you today, are you a Christian? If you're a mama, are you a Christian? Have you obeyed the gospel? If you haven't obeyed the gospel, let me tell you what. You're on the wrong road. Right now, as we speak, if you're not a Christian, you're not going to heaven. And chances are, if you're not going to heaven, those little children behind you, they're not going to follow you. I mean, they're going to follow you. What about, what about if you're a daddy? Are you a Christian? Are you setting the right example in the home? When your children look at you, do they see somebody who's trying to live a Christian life who wants to go to heaven? What if you don't make it? What do you think is going to happen to your children? Chances are they won't make it either. Here's what you need to do. You need to repent and be baptized into Christ today to wash away every sin, Acts 22, 16. God will add you to the church you need to be in the church because the church is the saved, Ephesians 5.23. Maybe you're here today and you're not faithful to the cause of Christ. You know what I mean by not faithful. You're not living right. You're not faithful in your worship. You're not faithful to the work. You're not faithful in reading and studying the word. You're not faithful in your prayer life. You're back in the world. If that's the case, think about your example. Think about the fact that one day, if you die in that state, you'll be lost. And not only will you be lost, but your concern in that eternal realm, oh, it'll be the little ones you left behind. 
It'll be the family members that you left behind that you know are headed where you are because you didn't live right. I want to encourage you today, if you're not faithful, you need to come home. Read Luke 15, the prodigal son. The Bible says he came to himself. There are some folks need to come to themselves. They need, they need to understand that there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. Would you come as we stand and sing?